Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. As founders, you're kind of mulling things over every day. So when you come to them with a new idea, you haven't thought of it that second. You've been thinking about it for like six months prior. When one of your friends comes up with an idea, you need to be the person they phone. Technology is just an extra medium uh, as to which you can deliver a content. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Peter Headley today. Hi, Peter. Hi, Harsha. How are you doing? Very good. And thanks so much for being here today. Peter is the co-founder and CTO of Recycleye, a London-based intelligent waste management startup, which is training the world's most powerful recycling robotics with machine learning to sort recycling waste in a more efficient manner. Their team of technologists and creatives have developed computer vision algorithms that replicate the power of human vision to identify every item in entire waste streams, broken down by material, object, and even brand. Recycleye secured £1.2 million in seed funding last December with MMC Ventures and Playfair Capital leading the round with participation from other leading funds. They recently saw their first machine, which is an amazing achievement. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. Yeah, great to be on here. Thanks so much, Peter, for taking the time. Before we dive into the podcast, I just wanted to thank Peter for the help he has given me in my technology journey. And also a shout out to Jack Young and Sam Collins. In a way, without their assistance, this podcast and the YouTube channel may not have come about. So thanks, Peter, Jack and Sam. So, um, Pete, do you have a quote that you would like to share with our listeners today? Yeah, so I, I spent a while trying to figure out which quote to nail it down to. And I'm afraid I failed at that. But I do have a book that I uh, particularly like. It's one that I recently read, and it's called The Culture Code. And it's to do with high performing teams and leadership in terms of, you know, developing trust and developing team culture that, that propels you forward. It really nicely resonates with me because I think in the way of a founder, you can very easily think, I'm leading the company, I need to be able to do almost everything. But actually, it's more, you know, giving the trust to your team, showing that you are vulnerable, and that, you know, you don't know all the answers so that they can they can contest and they can add their input and have ownership of the tasks. So um, it's been a bit of a learning for me over over this journey. But I've really liked that book and the guidance it's given. Oh, brilliant. That, that's even better than a quote, Peter. Thank, thanks so much for that. But we'll dive you know, into that strategic side later. But you know, just to begin with, um, would you tell us about your early life and why you chose to study civil engineering at Bath? 
Yeah, sure. So I think very much for when I was younger, my my parents and my grandfather kind of, you know, were, were into property specifically and kind of building stuff. I can remember when I was young painting an understairs cabinet, you know, because that's the only part of the house that they'll let you touch because no one sees it. So I was sort of painting under the stairs, etc. when I was younger and this this sort of tactile building and being able to look at what you've built, I think was very important for me. So that really started to push me towards civil engineering. Um, and I quite enjoyed maths at school. So it was a very natural progression to, you know, I can see what I build, it's pretty cool. And you know, this is large scale construction. So that's really why civil engineering as a, as a first degree took its shine for me. And I actually really enjoyed those years. Um, were you interested in uh, coding or computers at school or when you were at university? So I wasn't at all at school. When I was at university, I started to be interested in coding because I realized you could you could get music, et cetera. You know, the usual <laughs> usual intro. I wanted to get some some music um, on my playlist. So I kind of downloaded it through through code through YouTube. Went into a placement year and that was designing racetracks as a civil engineering job. So as part of my degree, you do a year in industry and you learn about, uh, you know, civil engineering and how it works. And my particular placement was in a racetrack design firm. So anything from go-kart tracks to F1 tracks, kind of all around the world, which I suppose the dream job for a kid in, in as, a, as an entry career. I quickly started doing some coding there. So they had some simulation software to optimize the racetracks that they design. And so I completely redesigned the software, sped up the time to iterate new tracks and equally, well, inherently saved a lot of sites, a lot of money. And my, so my impact as a software engineer even as someone who was just kind of messing around with code and didn't really know what they were doing was significantly more than my impact as a civil engineer. And that really got me thinking about, you know, well, how can I maximize my time, you know, through my career and make sure that I have the biggest impact in the world. And that really pushed me down the software path. Um, So I started taking it a bit more seriously from my third year in uni onwards. Did they give you a bonus, Peter, for the money you saved? I did. I did actually get a bonus. I was the only intern, I think, up until that point, who had got a bonus that year <laughs> for uh, industry. Well, yeah. Right, right, rightly so. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> well done. But, but I think that's it's really interesting. You made that point because I think so many people are sometimes fixated in there's one uh, career path and there's one destination. And I think you you were you know, quite clever to see. Look, I can use my skills in different ways and have a bigger impact. And therefore, rather than the civil engineering route, which is obviously in your blood you pivoted more towards data science. Yeah, exactly that. So, so that was sort of building and you know how, how there's sort of a key moment that equally it's been building for, for however long before. I did a, um, a two-day coding class at the weekend on just doing websites. So not at all what I'm into now, but, but equally a, a bit of a delve into, into websites. And I remember after those two days phoning up my mom and going, well, I want to stop doing my civil engineering degree because I was on a master's course. So I had a year left. And I want to go into computer science. And it, it was quite hard to persuade because, <laughs> um, you know, civil engineering is kind of a vocational course, right? It's very well trodden out, whereas computer science is um, completely different. So I remember that conversation and trying to say, well, you know, I think this is the logical choice. I can have a bigger impact and also the salaries are better. So my career is you know, going to progress further this way. But it was just a little bit uncertain for my parents. And they were kind of took some persuading to say, oh, yeah, I agree. This is a, a good direction to go down. Well done, Peter's mum for allowing you to go down that path. <laughs> yeah, that was my, my first negotiation tactic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, 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 we've all got to keep our mum sweet at whatever age we are. Yeah. 
<laughs> that, that's fairly normal. Yeah, that's such an interesting story how it had been building up in you. It wasn't suddenly you do the racetrack and then it, this light bulb goes off. You have this gradual, you do the work, you do the grind. And I think that's really interesting about careers. If you have something that you're interested in and you've put in the work over time, sometimes these ideas just come to you without, it's that creativity or spark of genius without thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think a lot of uh, investors and actually our, our investors as well, they, they say that as founders, you're kind of mulling things over every day. So when you come to them with a new idea, you haven't thought of it that second. You've been thinking about it for like six months prior. And so it, it's really hard for, for them to catch up because you've had six months of thinking about it. Even you know, even though you came up with it today, you have seriously been thinking about it for a long time. So it's it's quite hard to kind of digest all your thoughts because you know you, it's six months of progressive thinking until you have that spark moment, I find. That's just so interesting. And essentially, after Bath and persuading your lovely mother, you went to do a master's at Imperial. How did you find that? Yeah, I applied for an, a computer science master's at Imperial. It was conversion masters. So people with different backgrounds, anywhere from law, maths, engineering, which made it really interesting, actually, because everyone took a different spin on what they were interested in, in terms of, in terms of the course. The course itself was significantly harder than both. It was probably one of the hardest years I've, I've had in terms of academic side. There was very little break, but it was very intense, but great. You sort of learn a lot, a lot through it. And I took a particular interest in an area uh, called machine learning. So uh, computer vision applied to all sorts of things. So brand recognition in Ocado warehouses was our group project. And then I decided to put a camera on the front of my bike and try and predict whether I was going to hit people and sort of beep a horn if, you know, someone was going to jump out in front of me. Because um, if you cycle through London, everyone just decides to take a selfie and walk backwards into the bike lane. And so <laughs> I wanted to kind of detect that and automatically tell them to get out my way. Yeah, a big delve into the machine learning space through through the degree. Fantastic. And I'm, I'm a big believer in serendipity. And I believe that you met uh, Victor DeWolf, the co-founder of uh, Recycli at Bath. Yeah, exactly. Interestingly, he was on the same course as me, but he was a year below. And because I took the year out in industry and he didn't, we then met in the final year of, of Bath. And then I applied to Imperial for computer science. He applied to Imperial for environmental engineering. And so we met at Imperial and sort of I helped him out with his thesis in a way um, because I think he, he got to the decision point where he was like, oh, I need to decide what to do for my thesis, but my friends are doing all this cool stuff in computer science. So what I'll do is I'll take environmental engineering and combine it with computer science and then do computer vision applied to the waste industry. So then he got to you know do some of the cool computer vision stuff while still doing a slightly less sexy degree. But it, it turned out really well in terms of results and in terms of industry traction. And that was the start of recycling. So, so you're, you're saying that Victor wanted to be one of the cool kids and therefore did computer <laughs> science? Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't sound so good now that you've repeated it. But uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, but, but I, I just find that fascinating because it's that whole thing about uh, who you become friends with. If you sort of meet up with different people and really think about what they're doing, maybe you can have insights from their career. You know, take it back to sort of Steve Jobs and you know, Wozniak. They were sort of friends from back in the day and they weren't really thinking about, yeah, we want to build Apple into this huge company. They were just messing around and building computers for themselves and their friends. 
it's so important in any story asking where the why comes from, like what motivates you. Yeah, I think so. And I think not only friends, but it needs to be when one of your friends comes up with an idea, you need to be the person they phone. You, you need to be friends, but then also they need to trust you as in, you know, this guy's either in the right field, which was which was me because I was, you know, computer science or or is the sort of go to person for work or, you know, knowledge about a particular area. So as long as you you're happy to delve in kind of improve your skills and be that person that people phone, then I think it's quite a good way to open doors that wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, sprout up otherwise. And funnily enough, on a personal level, I did phone Peter to ask him about an app that I was working on. And actually, Peter was quite inspirational in, in pointing me in the right directions. It's funny that the app has been developed to a certain extent, but um, out of the app came the podcast and the YouTube channel. So it's funny how you can take information, think how you're going to present it, but then you pivot in a, a slightly different direction. Work you're doing on one project, it's never useless even if that project doesn't proceed you always learn something or you build friendships or relationships i I find that quite fascinating yeah exactly i think it was um i'm not sure if it was steve jobs but I, i remember someone took a font design class back in university and then found that as soon as they they've progressed into their role that they actually needed to design fonts so even all the all the stuff that you think you'll never use again is really helpful specifically for me while I was working at Apex, we were doing, doing a lot of proposals for technical construction projects and kind of racetracks. And it involved a lot of basically the PowerPoint skills, but nicely aligning, you know, graphics, et cetera, that, that do make a big difference. And um, now that's been quite easily transferred into, into Recycle.i and making things look professional and, um, you know, delivering that to the clients as well. You're right. It, it was actually Jobs. He was at this very fancy uh, college. And he used to step into these, um, sit into these uh, calligraphy classes. And I think out of that came Apple. And I just remember this classic line, he talks about how I think Microsoft effectively copied what Apple were doing. So that's why Word has all these crazy fonts. So yeah, and I think it was that Stanford speech he gave in 05 or 06, you know, around then, uh, which you know, I think everybody loves the whole connecting the dots mm. speech. Yeah, exactly. But w- what I find just fascinating about tech is the whole way you sort of reframe or reimagine problems. Um, And I think that really sort of ties in with um, neuroscience or psychology in in the sense of you look at problems and you think, how can you change the way um, this, the world is to some extent? So, I mean, in very simple terms, you look at Airbnb or Uber. So effectively you have these spare rooms or you have these uh, people with cards how do you essentially extract value out of that? And I believe it's a lot, a lot of, it is about just changing the perception or reframing the problem. Yeah, I think it's, it's exactly the same. So let, let's take you, take the podcast for an example. You started off with an app, right? Which is, which is one medium of delivering your content. And then you, you're equally, you can deliver it via a podcast, you can deliver it via YouTube, or you can deliver that content through a book. Technology is just an extra medium. Uh, as to which you can deliver a content. It just happens to be, you know, for example, in the Uber case, it's a lot faster and more convenient than a call line. You you want a taxi, you kind of phone up a, a, a taxi rank, right? But this is just an app that connects all taxi ranks. So it's just a different medium and some mediums make sense to put through technology, other mediums don't. And so it's, it's seeing whether technology adds value because in some aspects it will and some aspects equally, you could uh, do it in another way. Or, or brand it in a different way that makes more sense. 
And I think the, the other um, thing you mentioned to me before we, we came on this on, on air is this idea of sort of coming up with interesting technology and seeing how to apply it. And I think that was the case with Recycli. Is that right, Pete? So I think, yeah, Recycli was Victor looking at, at the waste industry and also what, what I was doing in computer vision and then applying, you know, here's some technology that could solve this problem and uh, applying it to the industry i think specifically on on things that are currently manual it's quite easy to see that link um if you're if your technology if you have a kind of tech mind it's quite easy to connect the dots in terms of there's someone looking at something that can be done with computer vision instead in terms of what we're doing now there are multiple ways to provide value on top of that so you can you can look at your technology and go okay well at the moment it's providing you know operational decisions to the plant or to the facility so what else can we apply it to can we put, apply it to strategic decisions can we apply it to you know certification regulation compliance and once you have a kind of core product then you can skin it in multiple different ways and think you know, how can i add a layer of value on top of this by you know framing it in a different perspective i just love that the whole idea you have a, a sort of a core base and then you're thinking how you can smith it out almost like repurposing content but in a slightly different way so i suppose with the podcast you've got the podcast but then you can take the zoom uh video and create a youtube channel and then you could write an article or write a book so it's just figuring out you've got some core ip um an, an asset how do you monetize that in the most efficient way is is that broadly correct yeah, exactly. And and I guess in the podcast case, it's the, the raw asset of, of Harsha um, on, on the call. And so, yeah, it's, it's how do you get that out? And yeah, equally with your career, right? It's the, it's the core asset of you and the skills that you have. And yeah, just thinking about how best you can augment those skills, where you want to head to in terms of either, you know, the product of you, what extra features do you want to add to, to build you as a person? And um I think that's a great point you mentioned, because I've been thinking about this a lot, Peter, this whole idea of looking at your career as a startup and just changing the relationship between you and your employer. Because I think sometimes, and especially now, you have so many people there who've got great qualifications. They're sending in all these applications and they're waiting for the employer to come back to them. And you have this very, this sort of massive power you know, imbalance. Whereas if you think of yourself as a startup, you've effectively got all this, um, these assets, this intellectual property. And uh, what you're doing is you are having a contract with the employer to effectively lease that out or lease yourself to them. It just really shifts the perspective and just shifts your mindset. And it just gives you a gr far greater sense of agency and control. Um, you know, you can create content and obviously we can go into that later on. But I just love that point you're making. And, you know, I feel, you know, I'm either you're reading my mind or I'm reading your mind. It's quite spooky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I do agree with that. It is, it is. So it's a, you know, a job is a transaction. So the, the person that hires you gets value out of, of you and equally you get value out of the person. Exactly the same as we found with raising money um, in terms of the startup. What you need to do is you need to build a kind of competitive landscape. You need to add a little bit of secrecy. You need to make people think that other people are big bidding you up, kind of, you know, all the sort of stuff that you do just to make a, a normal product sale. Um, but in this case, you're selling your company. And in a career case, you're selling yourself and your skills. It is a different way to think about it is I have all these skills, you know, I am capable of what I'm doing. And therefore, 
I should be bidding companies up for my skills and think of yourself as the commodity rather than the kind of check that you're going to get at the end of the month because that's but that isn't where the value is you are the value that that you know that leads to that well you don't want to be a commodity but I, I you're the asset which and and you're a unique asset yeah. and it's funny because I was watching a video by Gary Tan and I I know I've been sort of going on about Gary and how his videos are amazing but he talks about this yesterday that you have a finite number of hours in your life but maybe you can work you know maximum 70 to 80 hours and if you're effectively selling those hours off and getting an hourly rate you, you there's a maximum amount of value and revenue you can get out of that but actually if you can create something which essentially while you're sleeping is earning you money whether it's sort of ip or technology or whatever it is then that's a completely different way of looking at things D- don't you think so yeah that's that's sort of yeah passive versus active um investment isn't it and uh, i i agree it's but on the flip side as well just thinking from my my company hat if everyone in the world had this this mentality of you know i'm an asset and i'm going to bid up companies then then equally it's quite hard for a company to make any profit. So it's a it's a nice balancing game to see, uh, you know, how the market evolves and in terms of salary and and you know companies and, and what they can do. But but I suppose there it's then you're trading something off. You're giving up potential upside for certainty. And I suppose you know, with your company hat on, you have to create an environment where people just love coming to work for you and effectively you know you and Victor the the visionaries taking your company forward so it's a it's a completely different relationship it's not like you've got an anonymous guy up at the top you could be like jobs or you know the the google guys and effectively there's this relationship between you know your employees and you and i think it's very personal so then they're quite happy to maybe trade off some of their upside to be able to get the um the certainty, and also have the pleasure of working for you, hopefully. Yeah, I think so. I, I hope so. <laughs> but yeah, I think that that is the key difference between a startup and you know the likes of Google, etc. You know, we're never going to be able to compete in terms of salary with with these kind of big giants. Um, and we don't have to. We have to compete with the the overall package, which is yeah, responsibility. You know how much you learn on the job. If you're in a startup and you're making making big decisions, which generally do if you're in a startup, no matter what level, because there's so few people, then you really feel part of that kind of small team. You're you're winning milestones together, and there's you know a lot more career growth within these smaller companies than there may necessarily be in in some of the larger ones. And I think that's a great point you make uh, make about making decisions because actually there are so many decisions to make. I'm I'm just you know, doing the, the the YouTube channel and the podcast. There's multiple ridiculous number of decisions to make, but you really have to think what are the key decisions. And I remember when I was thinking about launching, I almost reverse engineered and thought, look, I've got a launch date of you know 20th of Jan. Work back eight weeks. What is it that I really need to complete to get it off the ground? And this whole idea of just getting it done, the MVP um, concept. I just think that's such a useful thing to apply to you know, it, your life to some extent. Yeah, I agree. And um, it's, uh, you know, learning fast. And the the faster that you can get to that either failure or learning, the more you progress. And I think, I think it was you that actually introduced me to this in terms of growth mindset, thinking of things instead of, oh, this failed, thinking of what we learned from it failing. And I think that's that's way more powerful and better as a company and a culture, actually is to to look at things and think oh we learned some things from this so it's actually important for our growth rather than thinking oh we wasted you know two weeks going down this avenue and 
you know, and, and sort of being really negative about it. As long as you think back and you evaluate what you've learned and write it down somewhere so the rest of the company knows, I think it's everything is growth. Obviously, thank you for the shout out there. I, I, I didn't realize you were listening to what I was, the nonsense that I was talking about sometimes, but thank you, Peter. But, but the other interesting point I, I came across was Jeff Bezos talks about that you know, one door and two door philosophy. And I think you, you can make a mistake, but you should never feel um, you know, you've, you've spent so much time that you can't go back. And sometimes you need to make that mistake to actually learn. I think it's a, sometimes it's just a question of like putting stuff out there, seeing what the public wants, because you absolutely have no idea what it is sometimes people want until you get it out there. And then you get the reaction you know, from your audience. I suppose with Recycli, there's a much bigger lead time. But in sort of content creation, it's literally you, you do an article, you do a video, do you get the thumbs up or not? And then it's, it's a pretty quick um, response. Recycle is a very long lead time in comparison. The, our first MVP, so you know, we have this waste problem, right? And, and we couldn't get into facilities at the time uh, to record much data and, and do much computer vision in industry. So what we decided to do was look on eBay for a 40 quid running, ma- running machine, went, picked it up in our car, took off all the top bars and basically used it as a conveyor, picked out loads of waste from all the bins, <laughs> took it back into the garage and kind of, you know, scanned it under our, our new conveyor vision system just to prove the MVP of it's possible to detect, you know, cardboard versus, versus plastic versus cans just from that really basic outlay. And I think it was around four or five days it took us. We could start saying, okay, now let's take it to facilities and see whether someone will bite and let us let us record some data in, in situ. But it's that whole idea of just having something you can show to people. Say if you're doing a podcast or a YouTube channel, you can actually say, look, this is something I've done earlier or this is a video. And I suppose in your situation, just having an MVP does make such a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, huge difference as well for getting feedback about what to improve, what not to improve. Really, another really good book, The the Mum Test. It's quite a short one, but it's about asking the right questions on your MVP so you can figure out the answer. And in that case, it's if you asked your mum whether you had a good idea, they'd your mum would obviously say yes. But if you said, for example, oh, when have you had this problem? When did you last try and solve this problem by doing something else? Then then it's far better questions than do you think it's a good idea or would you use it type things and you can get a lot more insight out of it. Totally. In technology, you need this whole idea of you know, creativity. And obviously you guys were incredibly creative. You've, you, oh, you couldn't get into the waste plant. So you effectively engineered, a, you know, got the running machine and uh, engineered this conveyor belt. And I, my personal view is that inspiration and creativity comes from you know, hard work and grind and then almost letting things settle and then the stuff comes to you. And there's a great quote from the guitarist Johnny Marr where he says, I like Picasso's idea that inspiration does exist, but it has to find you working. And I think it's that whole idea of just doing the work. And if you do the work, stuff will just come to you. Yeah, I think so. I think it's building out the skills. So it's, it's yeah, building out your skills and your your depth of life experiences as you go. And then suddenly, yeah, you know, things connect and you think, oh, I could just hack this together or you know, in the conveyor belt case, it was because I spent a lot of time with my uncle when I was younger, uh, fixing up old cars. And so I was very at home with tools, very at home with, you know, fixing stuff, you know, dealing with electric motors, which obviously, you know, the, the treadmill has a, an electric motor. So that sort 
of stuff that just built up through my life all the way from you know five or however old I was allowed to play with cars <laughs> up until up until uh, you know 20 something and then and then doing the startup so I didn't realize you were so good with your hands Peter I mean I've got a few jobs around my flat <laughs> if you when you're in London I'll, I'll work work it out and you can give me a price <laughs> strategic dinner to get me over yeah <laughs> exactly. I also love the way you you were saying that your role has evolved very much from you know when it was just you and Victor you obviously you guys are doing everything you're doing the coding you're you're doing you know the hard work on that side the engineering but you've gone from that to sort of managing one person then two people and now how many people are you managing now um yeah eight direct reports and then uh, a couple of under there so yeah it's been a, a big learning curve actually um in terms of you know i well I, I came out of uni uh so i came out of imperial i did a year in industry which obviously wasn't managing anyone and then went straight into recycle i so um you know started with the coding started with the you know the, the easy part of the job which is just doing some code and then moved over to the hard part of the job which is people and a lot of things learning through the way in terms of you know how to get the best out of people um how to support them that management of context switching for me so in terms of going from you know talking to people to then doing some work and then context switching back uh, i found quite hard so it's all all very fast in terms of learning how to manage a team that expects me to know what I, I know expects me to know what to do when I really don't because <laughs> um, I'm just kind of making it up <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know the the founder in terms of role is the least qualified for their role throughout the duration of a company because you know you it's impossible to have a skill set where you can start from one person be coding on your own and be equally capable at 2000 people yeah. managing like an entire team board everything so the key really is just learn as fast as you can and try and keep up with the momentum of you know how your job evolves over the time of your your company i think that's a really interesting point this whole idea of switching because you know i'm i'm finding that yeah i'm i'm producing content and i you know i lo- i really love editing i like the whole uh, creation of the youtube videos but then you have the other side of you know, finding top quality guests like yourself and then you're know, going and marketing your your project and trying to get new guests have a pipeline so they're quite sort of different skills there's the sort of the, the content creation bit and then there's the sort of the marketing bit you need both because there's no point having an amazing product if you can't go out and sell it so i think that's quite a interesting dynamic yeah i've i have interestingly been reading a lot of books about coos and talking about that dynamic between a ceo and a coo the coo kind of basically takes hold of all the operational side or or a fair bit of the operational side giving the ceo some time to think and kind of you know um, expand on ideas i think that's the same with two strong founders is there's very much a yin and yang approach where or in my case for example victor's very outgoing he can do all the sales side etc and i'm more of the the internal team side so i'm more on culture i'm more on sorting out processes thinking uh you know okay we've got five projects coming up how are we going to plan our resources and having people you know that bounce off each other and also can support each other through through some really tough roller coaster times of a startup 
I think that's a great point because you know when, when I've started this project, I, I I sort of hired somebody to sort of help me out just to get the podcast off the ground, and she has a very different skill set to me, which I really value. Uh, but I have skills that she doesn't have, so I think it's really good when you have that you know, two people with contrasting skill sets, but also they trust each other, and they also you're both learning from each other. And I think sometimes when one person is is maybe freaking out, then the other person will say, look. Don't worry, it's cool. Everything will get sorted out. And I think sometimes people get so focused on it's just got to be right. Um, it's a disaster if everything isn't right. Not really. I mean, the sun will still rise tomorrow. And people do make mistakes. If it's like a, a bit of bad luck, these things happen. And I think, and as long as a person is sorry and they're not going to repeat it again, then you just you just move on. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm sure you, you're a pro at this. It's all about the post video or post uh, audio editing <laughs> that clears up all of those. <laughs> no, no, Pete, you, you'll, you'll be fine. I'm just going to send this out unedited into the world. <laughs> and I think the other interesting point you made there was this whole idea of switching between, you know, doing deep work on, on something and then maybe going to managing sort of people issues. I, I, I totally hear you about that because sometimes you spend... You know, I'm doing some writing at the moment, so I'm quite happy to spend maybe an hour, two hours, and I really get into the flow. But then you have to switch from that to you know figuring out are all the logistics sorted out for the podcast? Is the guest going to turn up? Are you, you know, is the marketing going well? So it's that switching from one thing to another, which is not easy. So yeah, I do I do find that very hard. <laughs> My key, which is a really bad key, and I, I think we need to sort it out, is weekends. So generally, most of the people side is on during the weekdays uh, because there's lots of meetings. It's quite hard to context switch. And I just kind of, you know, my task list builds up. And then I sit down with a coffee on Sunday morning. Then I can get through my task list and, you know, have that deep work, which even if I tried to do during the week, I'd be so unproductive. It's just not worth, you know, I prefer to do it on Sunday. Working on weekends is not the you know you have to do it every so often but if you're doing it every week it's not not super healthy i totally hear you i do that as well because sometimes during the week you're just doing a lot of firefighting you're sending out emails and really then it's just the weekend but perhaps you should take fridays off just to you know um do your deep work somebody i know quite well called dory clark she's now taken fridays off so she can just think pursue her own interests wait for serendipity to happen if you don't allow yourself to meet different people or new people you won't have new ideas essentially you'll be just with your you know, recycle i crew and getting their perspective or, or where wherever it is i'm not saying that they're not a great bunch of people but i think just having one perspective is is not good um it's funny the other day i was i, I went to um holland and barrett and i persuaded the manager to sign up to my podcast you, you just never know i think don't, don't you yeah, think? I, I think so. Keeping the hustle going every oh, yeah. day is. Uh, <laughs> we did. Uh, we did used to have a um, a get get stuff done day, let's say, and that was Wednesday. But then it sort of went away. I do agree. It's it's having some of those times off, especially reading. I haven't actually read the book, but I I watched a, a lecture on the Miracle Morning. So say normally you get up just before you have to, yes. and then you kind of have a shower and you stumble into the office and whatever this is about getting up at least an hour before you have to doing some exercise doing some reading maybe doing some meditation and just kind of claiming that part of your day back so that you can you can fight the day in in the right way 
I'm really enjoying reading and kind of getting those different perspectives in the morning before I come into work and I've got, you know, a clear head and it, it helps me out quite a bit in, in terms of, you know, especially with lockdown and, and kind of emotional resilience. This point you made about sort of lockdown and uncertainty, I just think that's you know, quite fascinating because I think going forward, I believe the people who are going to survive are the ones who will be able to deal with uncertainty. And I think, unfortunately, human beings, the way we've survived is we don't like change. You know, if it's not broke, then you know, don't change things. And I think uncertainty is very difficult to deal with. Um, and I, I suppose on one hand, it's it sort of benefited the tech people, you know, uh, the pandemic, because, you know, people are at home and they're focusing on, on technology. But I suppose going forward, do you have any particular strategies that you're using to deal with uncertainty? Because I think there's a lot of stress out there because people just don't know what, what is going on you know, in, a, in a year's time to some extent, or even next week sometimes. Yeah, I think so. From Victor and my perspective, um, we've always said we have no idea what we'll be doing next year. It's starting to come a bit more certain, you know, as we progress the product, we're not going to move into something, something very consumer based or, you know, at, at the moment. So I think that uncertainty for us is fine. However, the uncertainty for our staff is very difficult, because we're quite happy saying, oh, we'll take the company in, you know, XYZ direction, we have no clue. And that often, you know, causes a lot of stress for our staff in terms of, what will I be doing next year? Like, okay, will I still be needed yeah. next year? Because, you know, you're quite heavy in this aspect, you know, where, how is my role going to evolve? So I think that's the key uncertainty is keeping it cool on our side and just having a strategy that is portrayed to the staff and seems, you know, is roughly where we'll go plus or minus a bit so that they can have the the certainty themselves and sort of that job security rather than, you know, moving that way. But then you know, equally, it's a startup, we have so much work to do, no one's gonna, we're, we're gonna need everyone. It's just how their roles progress that I think is causing the, the uncertainty there. I suppose it's almost having a mindset that, you know, these people have got these core skills, how can they take these skills and maybe redeploy it in a different area? Yeah, I think exactly. But the other key is they have skills and they can go in lots of directions, but do they want to go in that direction? And I think it's very much a, an easy assumption for a manager to go like, oh, you should want to become a manager and you should want to progress, you know, this way. And that's what I've, you know, assumed for a number of people. And actually that's, they want to go completely the opposite way and they want to go into a more technical role or they want to, you know, something like that. So it's that dialogue of, okay, this is probably how the company is going to be formed in the future, but where would you like to fit into it and, and what interests you? And Peter, by, by the way, are you looking to get into some sort of multimedia, YouTube, podcast, book publishing type venture? I, I know of a guy who's interested and has got some great content. <laughs> is, is that on the horizon? Complete in that, in that, yeah. <laughs> But, but anyway, apart from me pitching for a job, <laughs> obviously this is a career development podcast and I really like to take it back to actionable things that our listeners can do. Now, if you were now looking for a job, what, what would your advice be to sort of these young graduates um, just coming out onto the job market or still in university? So in terms of where I'd aim for, I think it's quite hard. I think you need to talk to people in the industry. So if you can get people, you know, for example, in tech, have a chat with someone who's you know, been in the sort of role that you're looking at. I think tech's a very hard one because typically you come out of university as an engineer, 
or lots of people do. And then they think, well, I can go into technology, but I could be a front-end developer, back-end developer, full-stack developer, data engineer, data scientist, you know, uh, machine learning engineer. And there's so many titles because no one has done, or very few people have actually done a computer science degree. And even in a computer science degree, you don't cover machine learning until your last term of bachelor's year. No one really has an idea of what these jobs involve, the kind of responsibilities you have, and, you know, what your career progression might be talk to people in industry, get a feeling of, of how that's going, and then just pick something that you're interested in and, and go for it. And then you'll see at, at the start of a career, you have lots of opportunities to chop and change. A lot of my friends have went into a job for like one to two years and then swapped or, you know, have been in a startup. So has been able to move to, towards the things that they're more interested in as their roles progress. Yeah, I guess just more delve in and see what happens. But then I'm only very shortly through my career, so I can't really offer any pearls of wisdom after, you know, 20 years or something in tech. <laughs> but nevertheless. Don't, don't, don't tell that to our listeners, Peter. You're, you're the CTO <laughs> of Recycleye. <laughs> no, but, but I think that's a really interesting point. So I think what you're saying is, uh, first of all, choose an industry to some extent and then really try and break it down and figure out what also what your skills are, what do you bring to the table and and then almost um, reverse, speak to a lot of people and then reverse engineer and see, look, is that the type of job that I potentially could do? And then maybe think about upskilling. Because I came across this really weird article and they were saying that nowadays, if you have 40% of the requirements for a job, you should just apply. Because I think nobody now has these very specific skill sets which are required. Um, I mean, I suppose for you with robotics, machine learning, all these different things, nobody has that. Uh, or very few people do so in a way you need somebody who has maybe half of that and then has the ability to pick the stuff up as they go as a, a very good point actually there harsher in terms of um a lot of people that put job descriptions out have absolutely no clue what they're talking about when they put the job description out in tech in the tech industry so they'll say for example you know 10 years of tensorflow experience or you know that was back when i was applying so you, you look at some of the roles and it's like oh you need 20 years of deep learning and actually you know deep learning or computer vision only really came to a forefront in 2012 and you're going, well, okay, so we need, you know, more qualifications than is possible to get. You need a PhD in this, that, and whatever else. In comparison to the, the qualifications that you can have and the level that you have, you might as well apply because the other quality of candidates is either going to be too expensive or the, the roles just completely off. It's that whole idea of just, look, if you have some of the skills, just send in an, a CV or an application. Also, you never know if you can get through that initial um, filter stage and you actually can get an interview and you do well. Because I, I'm a big believer if you meet somebody and obviously they have a base uh, level of qualification, the rapport, are they hardworking? Do they come across as some, somebody who's willing to learn? Can they admit you know, their mistakes? Because something that I, that I find uh, will hold people back is that if you make a mistake, we all do. Just put your hands up and do it quickly and alert people to the fact that there's a problem rather than trying to sort of muddle on, on your own. Yeah, I think that's the case, but that's also, I think that's also the company's responsibility. So as a company, you will have lots of people who come from different cultures and don't necessarily voice their opinions. So you really need to foster 
foster that and get people out of their shell to be able to you know reveal their thoughts and say when there are problems and it's a trust and vulnerable like vulnerability issue between the manager and, and and the person they're managing like do you have enough one-to-one check-ins with them so you they can actually have the time to speak to you are you open enough do you admit when you make mistakes so that it's more open and they feel like they can say when they do so i think in in that case it's yeah you can get some of these aspects and you can get some of the people that, that you'd like out of the hiring process which which helps bring that cultural aspect but also it's very much down to making sure you have the right managers that promote that behavior through the company i think it's very much incumbent on the the company itself to say look this is our culture this is what we believe in we're all in it together because i think you have companies that they say they're all in it together but if you know, things go wrong, they're looking for scapegoats or somebody has to take the fall, which I think is just a terrible thing. And I, I'd much prefer leaders to say, look, we've made a mistake, but we sort of live and die together um, rather than looking for a, a scapegoat. Yeah, I, I used to like the phrase, um, blame the process, not the people. So normally it's a process that's wrong or, you know, something like that. But but I, I am shifting slightly to more to, further towards like the honest feedback side where it, it isn't always a process's problem. It's sometimes, yeah, like a feedback, it is a people problem, but you just need to say it in a constructive built way. So yeah, I do yeah resonate with that. And anyway, I'm just glad to see that the um, the recycle culture um, seems to be in a, in a good place. So it's one of those things where you hope that the people who are working under you, they'll tell their friends that this is a good, good culture. And, and I think it's that whole network effect as well that, you know, if it was Peter uh, Headley or Victor saying, yeah, Recycle it's a great company, come and work for us. You never know how much to trust these guys. But if it's that sort of second or third order person, it, I think it, that it's far more authentic. Yeah, exactly. Cultures, culture is bottom up, not top down. Well, that's the ownership is with the team. You know, as a manager, you're just on the outside of the culture and sort of speaking into it. Yes. But it's really, yeah, the culture is what the team forms and it's their ownership to you know, bring it forward and make it the right, the right one. Peter, just to sort of wrap it up, would you um, like to give a shout out to anybody, your mom or whoever, you know, who sort of, you know, uh, helped you in your career? So, yeah, mom's been you know, very supportive throughout the whole thing, which which was great. Um, and sort of that change from one unit to another. Also, yeah, Victor's, you know, my co-founder is is very supportive on the day-to-day. As as the people that are leading the company, we have to sort out stuff that you just wouldn't think had, you know, should happen in in, in the world. And so they, you know, the support there and and kind of, you know, on the day-to-day keeping each other level has been really good. Brilliant. So Pete, I think we're coming to the end of our session. So I would just like to say Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to myself and to our listeners. It's been a fascinating talk. And I definitely think that meeting you guys, uh, you, Sam and Jack, learning more about tech, that's definitely helped me sort of shift my perspective and just the way you look at the world. I didn't have any, any friends who were really into tech. So I always thought this as a bit of a mysterious field. Three years ago, I think that's when we met, that I really said to myself, look, I really want to try and understand what's going on. This is all pretty logical. It's sort of quite process driven to a certain extent. And I think if you can sort of get over your fear of killing the computer or you know, destroying something, there's so much stuff there. And I think with tech, you have obviously the content creation side and maybe the more, um, you know, uh, the machine learning, but there are so many different aspects of it. I mean, yeah, it's just a, a, a wonderful area to get into in terms of you know, future careers and how you can develop and, and just changing the way I think you, you view the world. 
Yeah, hundred percent agree. And um, if anyone's considering a career in tech, I'd definitely go for it. It's a really interesting area. But once again, it, it is it's just a medium of delivery, and it's the understanding that your product or what you're trying to deliver has to add value. And then the tech is just the kind of padding that allows you to deliver that. I think that's a really good way of looking at technology and building things that people care about. Brilliant. And look forward to seeing you in the real world at some point. One day. Yeah, to fix your house, apparently. (laughs) Take care. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.